The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 50, verse 14. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Isaacer is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper in the path that bites the horse's heels so that the riders fall. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's fool shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe, let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is, from there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents." up to the bounties of everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said as he blessed them, the blessing with each, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. 
May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Julie. Let's pray. Father, we know that uh, it is your will that we be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And we also know that the way that happens is by your spirit and through your word. So please, Holy Spirit, take this passage. Use it to accomplish your purposes within each one of us. Lead us to Christ. <laughs> Conform us to his image. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. A number of years ago at the uh, 2004 uh, Olympic Games in Athens, Matt Emmons was competing in one of the shooting events and had a commanding lead over all the other competitors. In fact, right before he took his final shot, he was so far ahead of everyone else that the only thing he needed to do to win the event was to just hit the target anywhere in that inner ring. And uh, for an Olympian, that is not a, a difficult thing to do at all. And so the gold medal seemed uh, virtually guaranteed to him. It was nearly certain that he would win. So Emmons lined up his shot, pulled the trigger, and sure enough, the bullet passed right through the bullseye. However, when he looked up at the scoreboard, he didn't see any score for the shot he had just taken. And it wasn't long before he figured out why. He'd hit the bullseye all right. The only problem is that he was aiming at the wrong target. So he actually hit the bullseye of the, the target in the next lane over rather than the, the target of his, the bullseye of his own target. As a result, uh, his score was zero, and he dropped from first place to eighth place. Now, don't feel too bad for him. He did win another event, and he met his wife at that Olympic Games, as I understand. So he did all right. But uh, similarly, though, it is uh, very possible uh, for us to be very successful in our lives, but to be successful in the wrong things. It's possible for us to accomplish our goals, but be no better off because we have the wrong goals. And that's a danger for everyone. Even those of us who are Christians can sometimes get so caught up in the pursuit of earthly success and, and, and worldly prestige and, and various other worldly ambitions that we neglect the things God says are most important. Like Matt Emmons, we hit the bullseye of the wrong target. And that's one reason why I'm so thankful for the passage before us today. Genesis uh, chapter, eight, or chapter 48, verse 1, through chapter 50, verse 14. It's obviously a lengthier passage, but we'll be focusing especially on chapter 49. This passage is a great reminder for us to examine our lives and make sure that we're focusing 
on the right things. As we see Jacob's children in many ways reaping what they've sown, that challenges us to approach our own lives in a more thoughtful manner and be very deliberate about the way we live, the goals we pursue, and most importantly, the character we cultivate. Now, chapter 48 records Jacob blessing Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, The interesting thing about that chapter is that Jacob actually predicts that the younger son, uh, Ephraim, will become greater than the older son, Manasseh. That seems to be a theme in Genesis. The focus then shifts in chapter 49 to Jacob pronouncing blessings on all 12 of his own sons. Uh, Verse 28 tells us that he blesses each son with a blessing suitable to that son. And uh, that's a great way to express the main idea we find here. Jacob pronounces a suitable blessing over each of his sons. Again, Jacob pronounces a suitable blessing over each of his sons. He begins by calling his sons to him and saying in verse 1, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And that's why. These blessings are so significant. Like, understand, by pronouncing these blessings, Jacob's not just uh, you know, communicating warm sentiments toward his children. Uh, these blessings are actually being viewed as prophetic pronouncements that will determine the respective futures of Jacob's 12 children. In effect, God was guiding Jacob as he spoke the words of these blessings so that Jacob would predict the things God intended to do. So just know that these blessings aren't some sort of you know, ancient equivalent of you know, the fortune cookie message that you or I might read at the Chinese restaurant down the street. Right? They, are, they actually have real significance and real power to shape the future. They're pivotal in establishing the destinies of Jacob's 12 children, who will eventually, of course, become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob starts with Leah's six children, from oldest to youngest, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, and Issachar. He then moves on to the children of Rachel's maidservant Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, and uh, then the children of Leah's maidservant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher, and uh, finally Rachel's children, Joseph and Benjamin. And you don't have to read very far into this list to figure out that many of these blessings are largely related to the character of that particular son. So for the sons whose character was lacking, uh, let's just say that the blessings Jacob pronounces aren't really much of blessings at all. And uh, that shows us right off the bat that actions have consequences. By the way, there are three practical takeaways I'd like to draw out of these blessings, and that's the first one. Actions have consequences. Look at Genesis 49, 3 and 4, which records Jacob's blessing, if you want to call it that, on Reuben. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it 
He went up to my couch. Whew. <laughs> now, I imagine uh, toward the beginning of uh, this blessing on Reuben here that Reuben was feeling pretty good about the way things were going. Right? He was probably thinking to himself, wow, you know, I really thought sleeping with my father's concubine uh, would get me into really big trouble. But uh, I guess my old man, maybe he's just so elderly and senile, he forgot about what I did all those years ago. Uh, I mean, he's called me his firstborn, his might, the first fruits of his strength, right? Uh, preeminent in dignity and power. So I'm sure when Reuben heard those things, he was thinking this was going pretty well. Unfortunately uh, for Reuben, though, the other shoe drops in verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Notice how in that last phrase, Jacob shifts from using the second person pronoun, you, to using the third person pronoun, he. It's like he's turning away from Reuben there and not even talking to him anymore, but is now just talking about him to everyone else. Like, can you believe this guy? Like, he went up to my couch, <laughs> just in case the rest of the family had somehow forgotten, I guess. And so everything that sounded so good uh, for Reuben in verse 3 comes crashing down around him in verse 4. One commentator calls this one of the fiercest denunciations in Genesis. And uh, what Jacob says here eventually comes true. Uh, another commentator writes, When Reuben's descendants settled in the Transjordan, you know, across the Jordan, they soon disappeared from history. And no prophet or judge or king would ever come from the tribe of Reuben. Reuben's descendants were characterized by a lack of leadership and resolve. And so that's it for Reuben, right? We, we read, uh, if you were here several months ago, we read all about him sleeping with his father's concubine back in chapter 35, and he certainly pays for it now. Jacob then moves on to Simeon and Levi in verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men, and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Jacob, likewise, issues a pretty severe uh, denunciation here on Jacob and Levi, though not quite as severe as the one directed toward Reuben. Uh, the incident he's talking about when he speaks of their violence and the fact that they killed men in their anger is uh, the incident that took place in Shechem, recorded back in chapter 34, when the prince of Shechem raped their sister Dinah, and they responded with a citywide massacre. Uh, Simeon and Levi tricked all the men of the city into getting circumcised, and while the men were still recovering from that procedure, Simeon and Levi killed them. Like, they killed the men of an entire city. So Jacob predicts here that, in our main passage, that they'll be scattered and divided. And that is indeed what eventually happened. As I said, the point I believe we're supposed to take out of all of this is that actions have consequences. Right? Even actions 
undertaken in the heat of the moment can have far-reaching consequences, as was the case for Simeon and Levi. You know, there's a scientific law that states that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? And that is true not only in nature and of this physical universe, but also of our behaviors. In popular terminology, what goes around comes around. Or even better, in biblical terminology, from Galatians 6-7, a person reaps what they sow. You know, isn't it true that we sometimes imagine we can tolerate a certain sinful habit in our lives without experiencing any significant consequences from that? Isn't it true that we imagine that we can indulge in a sin and that it won't ever catch up to us? You know, it kind of reminds me of someone taking a a credit card or something, and uh, recklessly purchasing this over here and that over there with no regard for what they can afford and imagining that the bill will never come due. Brothers and sisters, the bill always comes due. Our behaviors have consequences, both in this life and in eternity. However, there is good news. We find it as we move forward in the passage and come to the second practical takeaway, which is that God offers redemption from the sins of our past. God offers redemption from the sins of our past. Look at verses 8 through 12. Turning his attention to Judah, Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So by any measure, this is a phenomenal blessing. Like You don't have to understand every single metaphor, especially toward the end of it, to understand this is like truly phenomenal. Um, And the more we dig into it, the more we see just how phenomenal it is. Uh, Look how it starts out in verse 8. Your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So Judah will enjoy victory over his enemies and preeminence among his brothers. That means he'll be even greater Then Joseph, although Joseph was undoubtedly the greatest at the time Jacob spoke this blessing, since he was, after all, prime minister of Egypt, that wouldn't be the case later. Judah would one day become even greater. All the other brothers would bow down to Judah. Jacob then compares Judah in verse 9 to a ferocious lion seizing its prey, hauling the prey back to its den, and crouching over as if daring any other animal to try 
stealing his prey away. Yet the most stunning portion of this blessing is in verse 10. It states that the the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Judah won't just be great and uh, the first among his brothers. He'll be royalty. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That will be fulfilled, of course, in the line of kings coming from Judah, including King David, King Solomon, and the other kings after that. Judah was the tribe from whom the kings of God's people would come. And yet, there's something even greater that's in view here. Almost all commentators, including even ancient Jewish commentators as well as Christian commentators, have interpreted this verse as a prediction of the Messiah's rule. Because notice how at the end of the verse, it predicts he'll rule not just over one people, which would be the people of Israel, but over many peoples, plural. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, it says. So that means all the peoples of the earth will one day bow before this great king and render him obedience. We're talking about a king who would rule over the entire world. And according to the Bible, there's only one person who fits that description. And he just so happens to be from the tribe of Judah. That person, of course, is Jesus. In Revelation 19, 16, Jesus is given the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In addition, we read in Revelation eleven fifteen 15 about Jesus returning to this earth and loud heavenly voices saying the kingdom of the world, right? The whole world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And there are literally dozens of other verses that speak of this as well. All predicting that Jesus will one day return to this earth, establish his kingdom, and rule over everyone and everything for all eternity. And his earthly lineage puts him within the tribe of Judah. In Revelation 5.5, he's actually referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So there's that comparison to a lion again, just like we saw a few moments ago in uh, Jacob's blessing on Judah. Not a coincidence, I think. And so returning to our main passage, Judah receives the greatest blessing anyone could ever imagine. Not only will he rule over his brothers and be the tribe from whom King David and all the other kings would come, he'll also be the tribe from whom the Messiah himself would come. Like, it just doesn't get any better than that. And this blessing is all the more amazing when you consider the sins of Judah's past, particularly the infamous incident recorded back in chapter 38 of Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking She was a prostitute. Uh, Judah slept with Tamar and got her pregnant. 
his shameful conduct was then revealed in a very public way. It was uh, nothing short of a scandal. And Judah had been living in the shadow of that scandal ever since then. However, if you read carefully in Genesis, there's evidence that this experience had a profound and very positive spiritual impact on Judah. Uh, for example, as soon as his sin is revealed, Judah confesses in Genesis 38, 26, that Tamar is more righteous than him since he didn't give her his son in marriage like he'd promised he would. And so instead of defiantly condemning Tamar or trying to minimize his own sin or draw attention away from himself, Judah responds in a humble manner. And uh, from what we can tell, with a repentant heart. It's interesting to compare Judah's response to the response of Simeon and Levi when uh, their father confronts them about their massacre of the people of Shechem. Instead of repenting or even expressing remorse, Simeon and Levi casually dismiss Jacob's rebuke. In Genesis 34-31, they say, should he, like the prince of Shechem, uh, treat our sister like a prostitute? A good paraphrase of that might be, like, what, are we supposed to just let him get away with what he did to our sister? No repentance, no remorse. Also, uh, not only did Judah respond to his sin in a strikingly different manner than his brothers did to theirs, he also seems to have become a different person in the years after that incident with Tamar. Uh, in Genesis 44, we see him pleading with the Egyptian official, who at that time was unknown to him, for his brother Benjamin, in a very heartfelt way, and even offering himself in Benjamin's place as his substitute in Genesis 44, 33. So from everything we can tell, the scandalous incident with Tamar produced within Judah a humble and repentant heart and uh, led to a significant change in his overall trajectory of his life. As a result, in our main passage, Judah receives the blessing of all blessings from his father Jacob. And you know, that's incredibly instructive for us as we think about the sins of our past. You know, one thing that every single one of us has in common here is that we have all done things in our past that we deeply regret, right? Things that we're ashamed of. Honestly, things that if the rest of the people in this church knew about those things, we would probably be so mortified that we would have difficulty even attending here anymore. And Satan would love to have us believe that there's no coming back from those things, that we're permanently stained because of the sins we've committed and irreparably broken. And nowadays, our society <laughs> says the same thing many times, doesn't it? Uh, I, I guess the most recent name for it is cancel culture. The idea, at least uh, in part, that there's no redemption from wrongdoing and that you will be marked by that wrongdoing for the rest of your life. But this passage shows us just how far that is from the truth. 
The stunningly magnificent blessing that Judah receives demonstrates that God does offer us redemption from the sins of our past. And we know from the Bible that the way he does that is through the very same Messiah who's spoken of here in Genesis 49. You see, not only is this Messiah an eternal king, he's also a merciful Savior who rescues us from our sins. See, there was a time when we were defined by the sins of our past and actually enslaved by our sins and fully deserving of God's condemnation and utterly helpless to save ourselves. But even when we were in that wretched and vile and hopeless condition, Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfectly sinless life, and died on the cross to bear the penalty for our sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him, who, made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, like in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took our sin so that we could have his righteousness. That means, for example, if we're, let's say, tempted to feel ashamed about sexual immorality, in our past. Guess what? Jesus took that sin on himself. Or if we're tempted to feel ashamed for how we've mistreated or even caused harm to someone else in our past. Guess what? Jesus took that sin on himself as well. The same goes for dishonesty, harsh words, greed, gossip, Stealing, pornography, and outbursts of anger. Jesus took every sin for which we've ever felt ashamed on himself. And he died for it in our place so that we no longer have to bear that shame. Of course, in order for us to benefit from what Jesus has done, we have to, first of all, repent of our sin. Right? Judah doesn't receive this blessing apart from repentance. Not only that, we have to put our trust exclusively in Jesus to rescue us on the basis of his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection. And when we do that, all of our sins are washed away. No matter how great our guilt or deep our shame, Jesus cleanses us from it all. Like there's no such thing as a stain that's too deep for Jesus to remove. And th a third and final practical takeaway from this passage is that godly character brings lasting reward. Godly character brings lasting reward. Look at the blessing Jacob uh, pronounces on Joseph in verses 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him. 
shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Now, it's true that this blessing isn't quite as great as the blessing pronounced on Judah. You know, it's kind of hard to beat that one since it predicts the Messiah. But this blessing Jacob pronounces on Joseph is still pretty extraordinary. Uh, in verse 22, he compares Joseph to a tree that's incredibly fruitful and with branches that are so vibrant that they expand beyond the space allotted for them and, as it says, run over the wall. One commentator says that this tree pictures Joseph's depth of character and width of influence. Jacob then describes in verses 23 and 24 how Joseph was bitterly attacked and severely harassed and yet remained unmoved in the pursuit of what God had called him to. As a result, Jacob says in verses 25 and 26 that God will bless Joseph with all kinds of elaborate and extravagant blessings, which Jacob describes in detail in these verses. And so the point is that Joseph had incredibly godly character and was therefore blessed in an exceedingly extravagant way. And the practical takeaway for us is that godly character brings lasting reward. Now, of course, that is not at all to say that we can earn heaven or merit eternal life uh, through our own efforts. Let's make sure we're all on the same page about that, right? The Bible is very clear that we are saved by grace alone and through faith alone. However, the Bible also speaks of God's people enjoying various uh, levels of reward in heaven. Um, so there is a link between the way we live in this life and the level of reward that we'll have in the next. You can find more information about that in Second Corinthians 5.10 and also the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Perhaps a good earthly comparison uh, would be the way children uh, enjoy uh, various privileges in the family that are linked to their behavior and how responsible uh, they show themselves to be. And we understand it's not that children earn their place in the family through their behavior. Right? They're a part of the family simply because they're born into it. They didn't earn it. They were born into it or in some cases adopted into it. Uh, their inclusion in the family has nothing to do with their behavior. However, the privileges, the specific privileges they enjoy often are linked to the way they behave and the character they exhibit. So similarly, we don't earn heaven, but we do earn various levels of reward in heaven by living in a way that pleases God. 
And uh, I'll tell you, in the midst of our society today, uh, that, you know, to be candid, just doesn't seem to be able to see past the pleasures of today. I think that's something we would do well to consider very carefully and uh, remind ourselves of very often. In addition, this blessing Jacob pronounces on Joseph is one that's focused much more on what's going to, uh, not on what's going to happen uh, during Jacob's or during Joseph's lifetime, uh, since it is kind of hard to imagine Joseph rising any higher than he had already risen as prime minister of Egypt. Rather, the blessing's focus is on Joseph's descendants and on how prosperous and prominent the tribes coming from Joseph would be. In a word, it's focused on Joseph's legacy. So we see that our present conduct determines our future legacy. The seeds we sow today will determine the harvest we see, not only in our own lifetime, but also in the generations that come after us. So let me ask you, what what kind of seeds are you sowing? What kind of legacy are you leaving? You know, the, the greatest blessing that we can pass on to our children and grandchildren isn't money or material possessions, but rather a legacy of godliness. So for the men of this church, are you passing on a legacy of godliness to your families? And as we consider this entire passage and the, the various blessings that Jacob pronounces on his 12 sons, it's good for us to remember that as great as these blessings are, and, and some of them really are quite spectacular, they pale in comparison to the blessings we've received in Christ. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul describes how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just think about that. Every spiritual blessing. That means there's not a single spiritual blessing that God could have given us that he hasn't given us in Christ. Right? He hasn't held anything back. As Paul goes on to say in verse 4, God shows us, even before this world was created, to be holy and blameless in his sight. We then see in verse 5 that God even adopted us as his own children. And then in verse 7, that he redeemed us from our bondage to sin through the blood of Christ and according to the riches of his glorious grace. Furthermore, as verse 11 points out, all of this foreshadows our heavenly inheritance that's so sure to come in the future that Paul speaks of it as if we've already obtained it. Right, Past tense, obtained. And finally, We see in verses 13 and 14 that God's even given us a foretaste of that inheritance by sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Paul actually uses a financial term and says that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, or you might say a down payment on our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. 
I mean, just think, the God of the universe, God himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, actually dwells within us. I just don't see how he could be any closer to us than he already is. And so the blessings that Jacob pronounces in our main passage are indeed magnificent and spectacular. And uh, we know that each of his 12 sons would eventually become an entire tribe in the nation of Israel. Joseph would even become two tribes. But as great as those blessings are, Dear friends, they don't even begin to compare to the blessings that are ours in Jesus and that we enjoy because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross.